This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I am your host, Brett King, and this is the number one fintech podcast and radio show. This week, joining us uh, to talk about innovation more generally and some of the challenges that organizations have in terms of getting that innovation culture right and so forth is uh, the Executive Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer for FIS, uh, Stephen uh, Walchek. Um, he brings over 15 years uh, of experience as a leader in technology. Um, he came to FIS from Amazon Web Services, where he led the ISV technology partner team and the worldwide strategy for their emerging services. But prior to AWS, he was also a, a founder of uh, and a leader founding team in three startups that successfully exited. Um, so he's got... Uh, He's got experience in the trenches and he's got experience from the platform and tech stack side. Steve Wolchek, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks, Brett. So good to be here. Appreciate you having me on the show. No problem. So um, first of all, the impact labs that uh, you guys have uh, recently set up, um, tell me a, a little bit about how that started. And, 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 you know, I'm also very interested in how the pandemic affected the role of uh, FIS's impact labs, uh, uh, you know, in respect to its, its strategic importance. Yeah. Well, um, turn back the clock here to, let's see, January of, of 2020, I was standing in our, our CEO's office and pitching this, this notion of building an in-house venture builder, something that allowed us to create companies that had the unfair advantage for success of having a captive channel and access to it through FIS, but also the ability to grow separate. Um, and, and I say separate, meaning the ability to grow separate from quarterly requirements that are traditionally put upon a, a standard line of business, um, al allowing them to grow and focus on things that are a, a less traditional growth metrics for a, a public company, um, things like user acquisition, um, while, they, while they move towards profitability. Um, and so we needed to create a group that could focus on, on disruptive growth opportunities while the, continue, the, the company continued to focus on, on sustained innovation, which is kind of the, the two delineating lines that Clay Christensen coined, you know, several years ago. Um, so we, uh, we were founded, um, you know, officially got our, I say our first check through the door in May of, of 2020 and, uh, and had to oh, kind of right in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and we had to onboard a, a you know a brand new team and, and actually simultaneously launch our first venture, um, start to grind the wheels on on the process for identifying and um, understanding, and then of course investing in a venture um, and, and you know several ventures building out our our, our portfolio. Um, so it was uh, it was a really interesting year to get things started on. Uh, building a team entirely remote was a very new experience for me. 
but uh, you know, I, I think when I look at in, in just kind of addressing the, the latter part of your question, when I look at the the pandemic itself, I mean, you saw acceleration across the board in the, in a lot of aspects. Uh, you know, both you know, and you can say in fintech and and the investments that happened in fintech, um, but also in in the the purchase behaviors of those that consume fintech, whether an enterprise SMB or, or consumer themselves. Um, and, and we saw a lot of that and that helped inform different strategies that we had when we were um, deciding where we wanted to invest, if, if that makes sense. It does. Um, now you've obviously been in the, you know, what I'd say internet infrastructure business with, you know, prior to, to FIS, but you've also been in the trenches as a startup. So did you find that that experience you'd had in, in, um, in terms of being at early stage companies, did you want to try and recreate that sort of feeling? Because it's, it's pretty exciting being a part of a small early stage team and getting that initial funding, or do you think it's more sort of like a 500 startups type play, you know, how do you see, see it culturally in terms of what you've tried to create? Um, I, I certainly think there's been value of having both big company experience and startup experience. Um, bringing the the understanding of what it takes to grow a business from zero to you know hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, um, as well as navigate the internal corporate challenges and and sometimes inertia. And, and I say that not related specifically to FIS, but in any large company, you're going to encounter inertia just because there's established practices and protocols that are in place for good reason. Um, but oftentimes those those same protocols aren't um, relevant to a smaller organization that's starting up. So um, having that, I think definitely gave me a leg up in, in trying to figure out the right way to structure this. Um, but but ultimately, when I you know when it comes to let's see five hundred startups, um, I, I love the notion of of what they've done or Y Combinator, where they've been able to incubate a bunch of different startups, um, give them access to network and founders from other startups to help accelerate them into market. Um, you know, ultimately, I look at them as a, a place where talent gravitates towards wanting to work with them. You know, especially the, the 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 top startups all have a choice on where they get their funding from and where they get their, um, you know, w- who they choose to partner with when they go to market. Um, with us, you know, we, we look at building things, wanting to attract that same class of talent, but the type of people that want to grow something from scratch, um, and, and want to build from the beginning. Uh, we certainly wanted to build a vehicle that would allow them to, 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 um, to succeed and, and help accelerate their companies into market. Um, but it's, it's a little different in the sense that our, our primary advantage versus a 500 startups is the fact that we have access to, you know, a, a significant and strong trusted customer base through FIS. That is the reason that we're not throwing darts at a dartboard, but able to say, okay, we, we know that we can achieve and understand product market fit very quickly. Um, and if, if we see something start to stick, um, and even well before we understand whether or not it's going to stick, you know, we were able to uh, to make really high quality investment decisions, and then to accelerate these companies in the market very quickly. Um, so that is that is kind of the I love the 500 startups or Y Combinator model. I, right. I think it's it's there, there are some unique advantages there. Um, but but building a corporate venture builder, um, an incubator, is uh, is really about accessing and and, and allowing. Uh, accessing the captive channel and allowing these things to grow 
in, in the way that a startup needs to be able to grow to focus on the right objectives early um, and, and then accelerate them as quickly as possible. So you mentioned that the team grew um, pretty um, quickly or significantly during the uh, pandemic. I think you said something like from four staff to 46. But um, given the restrictions we've had, um, you know, working from home and so forth, how did you go about onboarding people and getting them productive and excited in those early days? You know, it was cool from, from, I, I talked a little bit earlier about how we were in the, I was in the office in January, 2020 of our CEO. And, and, um, you know, he, he'd said, we absolutely need to kind of do this and we're, we're excited. And May was our first check-in. So we had this, you know, four and a half month period of time where we were able to really plan out how we were going to get this thing started. Um, and we, 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 a blessing in disguise because the whole time I was sitting there waiting, hoping when's our money coming in, when's our money coming in, we need to hire, we need to hire, we need to get all these things done. And, um, but that, that blessing was a lot, allowed us to really implement some very specific hiring processes. So, um, you know, for, for example, everyone on our team is trained to interview, um, you know, we have a very rigorous interview process, um, that's really meant to both provide a really excellent candidate experience, but also allow us to objectively ascertain whether or not somebody has the right, both cultural fit as well as, um, functional fit to, to deliver on this team. And, and we've, um, you know, I always like to kind of talk about this, that we, we generally on average generate about 22 pages of notes per candidate incoming. And, and I, I really believe that talent is, is, is everything to the success of this. Um, and having that ability to both plan the processes for um, identification of a venture and then hire the right people to um, run, run that, that part of the, the venture creation process, um, as well as plan out how we were going to make really strong decisions, where we wanted to play. Uh, that, that four and a half month period of time between go and first check-in really allowed us to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And here's the type of, uh, of people and how we're going to hire that, that type of person as well. Um, so I, I am, I was really thrilled. It was, like I said, a blessing in disguise because it, it didn't seem like that at the time, but in hindsight, I, I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, but, but certainly have to say like the, you know, people are everything to this team. Um, and, and the people, um, have been able to make or break the success of, of impact labs. Um, and, and certainly um, I'm grateful to have a, an amazing team around me. Awesome. So, um, you know, when, when you talk to people like Gary Norcross and, and the team, you know, um, what, is, what does innovation mean to the broader executive team? And have you found yourself having to sort of redefine that for the organization? Yeah, I think whether or not it's a redefinition, we've certainly helped the organization drive towards a definition. Um, I think innovation is one of those funky words in the business vernacular that everyone loves to use, but no one really understands what it means. Um, I always think of innovation as an ideology, not an output, right? You're not going to ask me how much I innovated last year, and I'm not going to respond with some quantifiable metric like seven. It doesn't make sense, right? You're uh, and everyone loves to say how innovative they are, but but again, it's it's innovation is not an output; it's an ideology. And and I think for for us, it, it is being you know constantly listening to our customers, understanding their needs, anticipating and validating the problems that they're going to face, and then consistently building and delivering solutions that solve those problems and needs. How you go about doing that, the tools you use, the practices you adapt um, and adopt to to get to that end. 
um, are all forms and, uh, and features and outcomes from adopting the mindset of innovation. But that notion that you're constantly listening to your customers, you're understanding the needs, you're anticipating their problems, and then building solutions is, is really the requirement. Um, and that's, that's what we've really tried to push. Um, and we've seen a, a massive adoption across the organization from the top on down of, hey, this is, it, it's our job, everybody, um, doesn't matter where you land in the organization to think about uh, how, am I, how am I doing that? How am I thinking about my customers' needs, anticipating their problems, and then giving them outputs, incentivizing those behaviors. Um, all of those are forms and, and features and, uh, of the outputs of an ideology of innovation. And so I, we have had the opportunity to shape that. And, and it's interesting, I'll, I'll finish with this, this quote that I think is really cool. The, and it was really inspiring for me as well. When I, when we were pitching this to Gary initially, he said, you know, as important as the value that this team will generate for the organization will be the impact on the culture of the company. And that is a powerful statement for a CEO to make Absolutely. Um, to, to someone like me. And I, I think you, you really need that tops down support um, to be able to do things differently. And this company has, it's not just Gary, everybody is, is nodding in chorus to that. Um, but to have him say that from the very beginning and to hold true to that has been uh, a really a significant boon. It's hard to want to do that if you're the only person hung out on an island right. wanting to make changes. Um, but when you have the support from your entire C-suite to, to move the, the needle, things become a lot easier. Um, and you start to see the rest of the organization want to adapt to that that ideology as well. So obviously the speed of digital adoption, um, you know, sped up significantly during the pandemic. So I, you know, we, we talk about um, different types of innovation, but one of the things we talk about in financial services in particular is what we like to term disruptive innovation. Um, because let's face it, um, you know, uh, in the U.S. banking market in particular, I know you're a global company, but in the U.S. in particular, when we look at things like real-time payments and digital onboarding and, you know, fintech charter, you know, even, um, you know, crypto and so forth, the U.S. has lagged many other, you know, sort of more ambitious jurisdictions that sort of want to use this to really build, um, uh, you know, awareness of their fintech markets or their capabilities. You know, the U.K. has been a, a very tough competitor competitor and um, real-time payments has been in place in uh, the EU for, uh, you know, almost a decade now. We still got, you know, ACH with three to five day transfers here and so forth. So um, there is components of this industry, um, you know, particularly in the US, which I guess is FIS's biggest market that are pretty traditional. So how do you, um, you know, talk about the disruptive nature of this and, and uh, get people to embrace the benefits of this when, you know, you are killing off some sacred cows. Uh, you love, I love to use that term killing off some sacred cows. Um, you know, th there is a, there's a reason that there's a need for disruptive innovation, right? I, I think, you know, I, I always love to, you know, hail back to, to Clay Christensen's differentiation between disruptive and sustained innovation. The notion that, you know, we tend to focus on serving our highest end customers, the most profitable ones. And, and you know, the, the customers that are not as profitable tend to get ignored while competitors come in and start to 
um, drive value towards them. And, and then we, you know, we lose out on the opportunity to, uh, you know, address emerging markets. Um, there is a need that FIS met. And I think the, the fintech industry pre-pandemic even was obviously undergoing a, a massive revolution. Um, and, and we've certainly responded to that as well. You know, we, we recognize the need. And again, I just kind of go back to that initial meeting with Gary and all the meetings we've had since then of uh, saying, listen, we, we as a company are going to need to continue to focus on sustained innovation. And that's not a bad thing, right? Everyone loves right. to talk about disruptive innovation, but the way we get funded for that is by sustaining innovation, right? By, by, for, by making sure that our customers are served. Um, however, when you adapt that mindset of an innovator across the board and, and you adopt that ideology of innovation, serving my customers' needs now and for the future, thinking about problems that they're going to face and making sure that everybody in the company has an outlet for pushing ideas forward. Um, we really made great strides towards ensuring that that's possible. Um, I think from a broader regulatory perspective, you know, things are shifting regardless of whether or not a company's ready for it or not. You can do everything you can to prepare but the moment that U.S. Bank says, I'm going to adapt, say, a, a central bank to digital currency, things are going to shift. Um, and you have to be prepared and ready for that to the extent that you can be. But sometimes you, you're you not able to be. And so you either need right. to, as a company, be prepared to react um, or, or you need to um, be as best out in front of that as possible. And so I think uh, our team is certainly set up to, uh, to, to, to react and respond to emerging trends. Uh, but I think the company as a whole is doing everything that they can to um, to, to serve our customers in an ever-shifting environment. And you talked about several new trends or, or earlier in your, your question um, that, that I see our company addressing um, and sometimes being out in front of it and sometimes being behind it. Um, and, and, and to be you know, perfectly frank, I, I don't know if anybody's great at doing all of that at once. Um, I, I think some companies are great at being reactive. Some companies are great at being proactive. And I certainly think we've set ourselves up um, to do both very well. Um, and it, and it's an, a very rapidly shifting landscape, both from a regulatory standpoint, as well as from um, a, a technology availability perspective as well. So tell me about some of the skills specifically that you went after in respect to, you know, um, building this team because, you know, there, there's a broad set of potential innovation paths you could take. So how do you build a team that's as flexible and adaptable as possible? What were you looking for in terms of skills, background, et cetera? Yeah, um, I, I always love to boil it down and, and I'm paraphrasing um, one of the guys that works for me. Um, you know, we, we look for people who are, are smart, nice, and driven. I mean, that's a, that's a very overly simplistic way to, to look at it. We have very specific roles on our team that are, are crafted with expertise in mind in a particular area. For example, we have, uh, you know, two members of our team and a third that's currently open for, and, um, they're called ideation and, and design thinking leads. And, and their job is to, um, help run the process of driving ethnography around a particular problem statement that we generate, understanding how broad that problem is across our, our customer sets, building out the journey maps to understand that problem in depth. Um, then we couple them with the strategy manager on our team who um, can actually go out and do an assessment on the, the market viability, technical feasibility, understand whether or not solving this problem statement can hit the revenue threshold necessary over the next five years that requires, um, that allows us to meet the value generation that we've committed to. Um, so there are 
a, a bunch of roles that we've created on this team that help facilitate venture creation. Now, when it comes to venture operations, um, we love to find talent on, you know, that is, um, that has experienced building things from zero. And that doesn't mean they have to be wildly successful. Um, some people are too early, but they, they're absolutely fantastic builders, but they just got to market too early or there were other um, non-execution oriented issues that prevented them from being successful. I know um, all about, I know all about that because <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we started moving as the first um, you know, mobile challenger bank in the world, in the U S in, in 2010 Wow. And 2014, we had a quarter of a million customers and we couldn't raise money because it was too early, you know, and yet, um, you know, we were, we were one of the largest in terms of, um, you know, app downloads and active customers and so forth at the time. So timing is uh, is is pretty important. But, you know, the, the interesting thing about the roles that you talked about is that, um, you know, these are atypical roles for financial institutions and banks. So, um, you know, if we look Look at what FIS has done as a framework for what, you know, banks should be thinking. You know, how would you advise a CEO of a bank today to organize this function within the bank? I think, you know, starting with somebody who's willing to be a change agent, um, and that, that term would traditionally make me shiver um, if I were the incoming person, because that is a very difficult thing to be. You shoulder a lot of burden of corporate inertia on your shoulders, and you... Um, you have to be the person that's, that's willing to buck the trends as they've already been established. And look, these are the, the people who are in leadership roles at these banks are, are there for reason for the most part, right? They've been very successful. Um, but you have to have people that understand, um, at the very top that there's a shifting landscape and you, you need somebody who can capably shoulder the burden of corporate inertia. And I say that, that does not an FIS statement. That's a statement broadly. Um, and we have our own corporate inertia too. Um, that doesn't mean that, that a company's not innovative because they have that. Um, but you definitely need somebody who's willing to take that on and say, I'm, I'm willing to do the right thing. Um, and, and you have to have that support from all across the C-suite. I would start there by saying, does everybody support making sure that we, that knowing that we have to do something here and then standing behind that leader, who's going to be, you know, out driving the changes is a requirement. Then when you think about how you want to actually deliver, you need to set objectives very, very early for what you expect from this team, because uh, you can say, okay, well, I want value creation. Well, what does that actually mean to you? Um, is there a number that you're looking for? What type of, of, of companies would you want this, this team to build and incubate? Um, do you want them to incubate things that are near term? Um, for example, um, it, you know, FIS hasn't come to me and said that, but let's pretend that they came to me and said, I want you to build a challenger bank, right? They haven't said that to me. I'm not doing that, but the, the, the they, that's a, that's a nearer term kind of, you know, reactive position and posture as opposed to, Hey, I want you to go and understand how NFTs are going to impact value store at a right. bank. And then I want you to build a company that can go do that. That's a yeah, different. Should we set up a safety deposit box for our clients NFTs. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Um, that's a very different mindset, and and the the value creation on on one versus the other looks near term versus long uh, long term, and these are things that you need to set out at the beginning. Um, what do I want from this group? Um, and then making sure that you fund them to the extent that they're able to do this well. You know, if I look at the stats 
um, you know, there's an HB article that came out a couple of years ago that said, you know, of the fortune 500, over 90% of them stood up, um, innovation teams, um, and over 90% of those teams failed to deliver what right. they promised. Right. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why that was. Um, but if you, I, I can tell you that the number one reason that they failed was the, the fact that they, they failed to deliver value. Right. Um, but that's simply because there was no alignment on the objective at the beginning. You know, we, we were very crystal clear on what we were going to deliver on. Um, and we delivered on that faster than we, we'd stated we would. And then our, our CEO and, and our executive team said, okay, well, we want you to focus on some longer term stuff. Cause we were like, oh, we were so hungry to make sure that we could prove that we could do this, that we built something that was fairly near term, fairly adjacent to the business. Um, and then we, we, you know, they said, okay, this is cool, but now we want you guys to, you know, we love that you've created value here, but we want you guys to start thinking longer term. A what things are, are going to be? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Um, and, and it's easy to want to say, well, that's where I always want to be. Um, cause I've always wanted to do the visionary stuff, but we think that we've earned the right to do that. And so I, I would say okay. on one side, okay. the business needs to be crystal clear on the expectations on the other side, the incoming leader and the the, the team that's going to be doing this needs to be very crystal clear on, you know, what is, you know, what are the objectives that we've been set towards? And then we, you know, how do we over deliver on those early so that we can continue to get funded because you don't ever want to be the person on the chopping block. Um, you know, and I think about, so, this. so, so let's jump yeah, in and, and talk about that. You know, what yeah. are, what are some of those early successes that, you know, gave you that, right. You know, the way you were able to actually demonstrate the success of impact labs. Yeah. So when we were, when we were getting started in May of last year um, and, uh, you know, an idea came down that said, Hey, we have all of these merchants that are, that are facing a major problem right now. And that problem is that there still exists a, a lot of friction and checkout for them. Um, and uh, what, what can we do that, that, that would help address this problem? And so we went out and looked at a bunch of, of solutions that were out there um, and recognized very clearly that there was an opportunity to, uh, to look at, um, a variety of industries that were, that were underserved by current solutions, things like, um, personal services and healthcare, where there's no simple way to check out where there's no identity that I have as a shopper, um, that allows me to, to pull through. And, and we were able to, um, to deliver a company called go-kart, which you'll, you'll hear about in the media very soon. Um, that's, that's grown extremely fast. Um, and in, in various industries where we're not just touching the same everyday S and P retail that everybody else is fighting for, but we're touching that plus a multitude of industries that are underserved when we've been able to, to kind of under our construct, we were able to get that product from, from, you know, uh, idea to production in four months, which for a company of our size is, is very quick. Um, but the, uh, the ability for our team to have the tools and, and, uh, and, and, you know, define separation necessary for us to build that and create it as fast as we possibly could, as well as incubate it, and then access the unfair advantage of success that our captive channel offered us, um, allowed us to grow that um, immensely. And, and you'll hear more about that um, in a public launch. Looking, looking forward to that. Just, just quickly, why Denver? Uh, why Denver? Um, so I, I came in through the acquisition. Apart from of the skiing during the winter, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know. I, I came in through the acquisition of WorldPay, um, and WorldPay moved me out to Denver. Um, we we actually love Denver for a variety of reasons, but but primarily it's it's centrality to the to the to the rest of the U.S. and even the world, being that it's one of the busiest airport hubs in the in the uh, 
in the world, um, certainly in the U.S. Um, we're we're kind of two and a half hours from everywhere, and I'm able to attract a lot of talent here. Um, I think you know it's expensive to drive talent in California. I came from California myself, um, but to, to you know a lot of people, given the pandemic, were willing to move and uh, and to get to a place that um, you know wasn't relegated to the coastal hubs. And, uh, and Denver kind of offered the next most attractive. I think there's, there's all sorts of good reasons to love the outdoor focus, the skiing in the winter four full seasons, uh, the lots, lost, a, a lot less traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we no, certainly hear about that a lot. <laughs> I wouldn't know a thing about it. <laughs> no, of course, of course. All right. Well, Hey, Steve, Stephen Walchek, um, you know, it's great to uh, have you on the show, uh, give a little bit of experience. We'd love to he- hear a little bit more about go-kart when it's ready. Um, um, but um, sounds like you've you've got something um, cooking at FIS with Impact Labs that's really interesting. Where where can people go to find out more about this? And are you actively looking for partners to to join in? Um, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Um, you know, I I would just say for, for now you can uh, you can email us at uh, at you know email me Stephen at fisglobal.com. Um, I'll certainly get you to the right place. Um, we're standing up a public facing entity soon here. Um, so you'll be able to, to get through, um, FIS's website there as well. Um, but for now, just reach out to me, steven.walchek at fisglobal.com. I'm happy to, to help you navigate where we're at, but, uh, would love to hear from you, whether you're incoming talent and looking for, for a really fun place to work, really interesting environment, um, or, or you'd like to partner with us, you're in VC and, and you're looking, you know, we have the ability to go external for capital. So that's always an interesting one. And, um, or if you just want to chat, let me know. Fantastic. Well, that's uh, the story of FIS's Impact Labs born during the pandemic. And Steve Walchek, thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again, Brett. All right. Well, we're up for a break now. Um, stay tuned. We've got more goodness coming after the break. You're listening to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. We'll be right back in a moment. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. These are our financial futures. The Financial Futures podcast by FIS explores fintech innovation and the trends that are already transforming the way the world pays, banks and invests across the globe, and the mechanisms we'll need to prosper in this brave new landscape. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? Find Financial Futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Okay, so we've been talking to FIS Impact Labs about their uh, work incubating new ideas on top of a ever-changing financial services landscape. And to that point, um, uh, we heard them talk about um, their new the new go kart initiative. So we've got Ash DePapas, who's the founder of Go Kart, with us right now. So Ash, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks, Brett. So first of all, tell me, um, you know, we've heard a little bit about Go Kart, but as a founder, tell me what GoCart is. Yeah, GoCart is a consumer payments experience for people like me and you who make payments online uh, for you know retail items, whether it's clothing, whether it's for professional services, or even to order food online to make that easier for checkout. GoCart allows um, users to save their email and create an identity with us. 
save your payment information, and then ultimately pay more quickly, um, whether that's through text, email, um, online checkout. We really want to build out a seamless experience for consumers to be able to make payments. Uh, when, we, when we did the research last year, this was kind of at the height of the pandemic. Multiple businesses, whether you were a retail restaurant or services, were trying to figure out how to improve your digital payment experience so that consumers can um, easily purchase their products or their services. And uh, GoCart was kind of born out of that. What we found was that a lot of um, payment solutions out there today for consumers are disparate and only work in certain devices or in certain environments. And what we wanted to do is kind of provide a seamless experience across that, something that's cohesive for customers um, that makes it easier for them to purchase and ultimately drive up revenue and conversions for our, uh, our sellers and our businesses out there. So would, is it a wallet aggregator? Is that an accurate way it, to... It's, a wallet aggregator is a term that is confusing. Um, I would say it is It is not a wallet aggregator, but more, it is... More it does an attempt at creating ubiquitous, ubiquitous yes, payments yeah. experience. There okay. is a wallet component in that anyone who has an account with GoCart has saved payment information. Now, the types of payment um, methods that you can use in GoCart are going to grow over the t- over time. So think sure. about GoCart as a way to, you can check out with a credit card, you can pay with your debit card, you can pay with points, you can pay with a buy now, pay later option um, and move into you know things in the future like crypto and other methods that are becoming more increasingly common for consumers to use. So that's the wallet component. The, what's unique about GoCart is we show up in different digital channels. So most wallets today are typical buttons. You'll see a you know payment button. We found that consumers get confused by all those buttons. Which one should I use? Um, we show up in um, the format of a text or a format of an email to allow sellers to be able to convert the sales of their products in other channels besides just online. And that's what's really, really unique and different oh. about us is that we're kind of beyond just a payment button. Um, if you're you know, buying a, a, um, a clothing item and you forget about it, the seller could email you at a later date and say, hey, we discounted these jeans for you. Um, awesome. And then you click the link in your email and you're on your way because you already have your payment saved. Great. So I only have one more question for you, Ash, but um, could you tell me mm-hmm. how you worked with FIS and the Impact Labs team and how that helped? Yeah. So, um, it, well, one, we're born out of the Impact Labs team. So we we start to we start to d- identify a problem, and in this case, the problem was checkout conversion online and checkout conversion in other digital channels. So the 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 incubator component of Impact Labs is we build kind of the the research and we do all the di- due diligence to validate that it's a problem, that it's a market space that we want to go um and go after, and then ultimately build the product to test it for product market fit. Um, so that's the incubator. That's the incubator portion of it. And so did that process. Um, I was I, the fourth member on the Impact Labs team. So primarily on our own, that team is much bigger now. So there's a lot more muscle behind it. Um, but once we get to a stage where we feel like we want to invest in this as an actual startup and really grow and scale it as a venture, um, that's where we start to bring in the broader FIS organization. And there's, there's kind of two main advantages here that really help and we'll get what, what what gets me excited about GoCart's opportunity is, is that we have access to this really large client base of merchants. Sure. Um, you know, FIS has uh, millions of merchants globally, um, a huge presence in e-com. So our ability to scale this product much more quickly than a normal startup, what is our biggest advantage? Um, on top of that, we've 
we've got access to payments products that we'd love to bundle into our solution that we don't have to build from the ground up that have been built by, you know, a very established um, player in the financial technology space, um, which brings a lot of credibility and a lot of security to our product as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, joining us and giving an update on uh, GoCart. All the best with the, uh, the rollout. Thank you, Brett. Nice to meet you. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020. But in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a thousand percent. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics. It will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change, and of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income, and massive mobilization of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. The realization that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. 180 countries, 7 million new unique listeners. We are very happy to have back on the show this week, Colin Walsh, the founder and CEO of Varo Bank. Colin, welcome back to Breaking Banks. Hey, Brett. It's great to be back on your show. You've had quite a couple of weeks, dude. You just announced this massive funding round. Um, you know, it's 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 not the largest funding round in uh, in fintech, but it would have to be up there, certainly in respect to US fintechs. Um, so, congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Yeah, very exciting. I mean, it, we we didn't set out to raise this much money, so it was a so it was a really nice validation and sort of vote of confidence for 
the business model that we're pursuing, and you and I have been talking over the years, so you're pretty familiar with of the course. strategic decision that we took at the beginning to become uh, a chartered bank and to operate inside the formal regulated system, where I b- believe from the beginning that that you could bring the most most innovation and you could really do the most to to help consumers in a powerful way and we'd love to talk more about that but uh clearly this uh this funding gives us a lot of firepower to grow our business to really build a a meaningful brand in what's otherwise a pretty crowded space and 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 you know be a real leader in this space and, and then just continue to build out our product vision and and uh we can certainly talk more about that as well I definitely want to get into that, but but do you think if you were in if you were in the UK, for example, would you have just got a fintech charter, or would you have gone for a full bank charter? Because in the US, you don't have an option, right? Well, keep in mind, six years ago today, I was in the UK. Right. <laughs> I was living in the UK, so 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 borrow is not that old. Um, and um, you know, I came back to the US and started the company because I believe that the opportunity in the US is just massive, particularly with growing income inequality and, and some of the real Absolutely. problems that we have in this country between kind of the haves and the have nots and, and, and money and banking is just such at the core of this. And so, so that was, you know, my, so that was really my inspiration for, for doing this in, in the U S I think in the UK, there certainly could have been options that um, could have gone from just getting a payment service license to becoming a full bank. Um, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it differently per se. I think the need was, it was obvious to me that the need was much greater here in the U.S., at least at least now. And I think, you know, there are other parts of the world where, where this model could be very effective as well. I mean, now you've been through all the hard work of getting the charter, you know, of, of course, um, you know, if, if the, the OCC was suddenly to launch their fintech charter that they've been trying mm-hmm. to do for five years, um, you know, uh, then um, it would allow others to uh, expedite the sort of, uh, um, you know, work that you had to do to get the full charter. Um, yeah, although, sorry, not to interrupt, but I would say that the, the fintech charter is really a special purpose charter and, and it's built right. around, um, you know, more um, focused uh, banking solutions around payments or uh, potentially around lending, uh, whereas the full bank charter uh, allows us to innovate across the entire spectrum of consumer financial products. Right. And, and, you know, whether it's deposit taking, transaction accounts, payments, lending, you know, wealth solutions. And, and so for me, that I, I don't think we would have changed our decision, okay. uh, even if the special purpose charter was available. No, I, I get that. Um, but you have broken new ground as a pure play, digital player with the charter. Um, and so, uh, you know, is uh, uh, are the regulatory bodies that you're working with now getting more used to the fact that, you know, you, you don't have branches in your future? I, I definitely feel that this has been a journey with the regulators. They understand um, and appreciate the differences in our model from a technology perspective of the types of technology that we use, kind of our go-to-market strategy in terms of how we acquire and service customers. Uh, I think at, at the beginning, you know, because this has been a long journey now, it's been, you know, four years since since we started this, um, you know, I think that it was a little bit of a, a, a different business that, that they had to wrap their heads around, but I definitely feel that we've come a long way on that front. Um, you know, now it's about, uh, you know, making sure that we 
are fulfilling the vision and mission of Varo in terms of really being able to expand financial inclusion and, and bring financial opportunity while having a um, sustainable business model. Uh, I think that's something that uh, you know puts us in a really unique place in the sort of challenger bank market. That you know we're in a, we're in a unique position to pursue growth and profitability, which is is, is sort of a rare rare situation. Absolutely. So you raised $510 million, over half a billion dollars is a very big number. Um, The obvious question is, what are you going to do with all the cash? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it presents some. It's an interesting, um, uh, you know, moral hazard because you know, as I said, you know, what's very important is that um, we we create a profitable business model. I mean, that matters a lot to the regulators. It matters a lot to our investors. Um, and so, you know, we will take a very disciplined approach in terms of how we deploy that capital uh, to ensure that we scale and that we create a a powerful business and you know, over time, a really iconic consumer brand in the space, uh, but we do it in a, in a measured way that allows us to also achieve our profitability objectives. So, so, uh, so it is an interesting because you know, when you have a lot of money, you know, it's, we're not going to just go and then blow it, but but uh, be uh, be sort of uh, disciplined in the approach in which we deploy the capital. But I'd say the key areas are going to be around growth, um, around continuing to build out our product roadmap. We have some incredible data assets and continuing continuing to leverage that. And, and building uh, our focus in that area because I see, feel like that is really kind of the secret sauce at the end of the day in terms of how we leverage our insights for around around the customers that we're serving to, to really move the needle in terms of their financial lives. Um, and, and then um, obviously risks and controls and you know preventing fraud and all the things that you need to do when you're when you're operating a, a large at scale uh, digital bank. Um, and you know, in terms of um, uh, you, you, you're already making good traction. Um, you know, where where are you at in terms of your your customer base now? Yeah, well, since we opened the bank a year ago, a little over a year ago now, I mean, we've more than doubled the number of accounts. So we're uh, well over four million accounts that were that uh, that right. uh, have come into the Varl platform. Um, you know, every all the metrics are are moving in an exciting way, and 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 really starting to drive deeper levels of engagement. And one of the things that you know I always talked about right from the beginning is that one of the benefits of being a bank um, is the fact that you can do more for customers. You can have more integrated solutions to solve real pain points for your customers beyond just a single point solution. And to me, that's the ultimate definition of the super app, so to speak, uh, but being very, very customer-centric and focused on what are the problems that you're helping uh, solve for customers. And, and you know, at the heart of what we've been focused on is helping our customers achieve a, a greater sense of financial control, better stability in their lives, uh, feeling like they can build resilience over time. And, and it starts with a lot of uh, the basics in terms of how they manage cash flow, how they build savings habits, uh, helping people build credit. We're uh, rolling out the Borrow Believe product, which is having just enormous uptake with our customer base. Uh, and so these are all kind of foundational elements towards better financial health. But as a bank, we can do all of this in a, in a really seamless integrated solution for our 
our customers that, uh, and we can measure the the impact and the outcomes, which is something that, that um, is super exciting and motivating for me and my entire team. And so many of the people that have joined Varo have done so because they can see that we can have an impact in people's lives. And you know, ultimately that ladders up to having an impact on communities and society. And so, uh, so as we just continue to scale, and being able to focus on these pain points and how we can bring to bear, you know, numerous solutions. I mean, just in terms of, you know, you think about uh, the consumer that's trying to get to the next paycheck, you know, and the, their cash is running out, you know, everything from not having to pay lots of bank fees, getting an early paycheck, being able to advance yourself some money to have access to potential supplemental income, like all of these things are packaged very seamlessly into the app experience right now. And, and quite frankly, you know, our customers tell us it's changing their lives. And so that's what's, uh, really exciting from my standpoint. So when you think about you know how we deploy this capital, uh, you know it is about just continuing to create this super rich, robust uh, solution for our customers, and then just telling our story and just being out there. You know, we did the deal with Russ Westbrook earlier this year. Russ is amazing. Yeah, the partner. NBA guy, he, right? Yeah, hugely passionate about about this space. I mean, he's a real philanthropist as well as a you know NBA superstar, and um, and you know it's just a, a series of of those types of partnerships and and you know we've got ads airing now and we've done some really cool kind of provocative outdoor advertising and then obviously all the kind of through the funnel marketing activity that will just continue to scale up well two of the largest uh, offshore challenges um uh, you know we bank in shenzhen and new bank in latam and both of them talk very similarly to you in terms of the the issues of inequality but more more particularly financial inclusion mm -hmm. um, this is where we bank and new bank have been extremely effective and so i get the financial health thing obviously you know moving um, you know deployed uh, you know, our challenger bank on that basis as well but from a financial inclusion perspective do you think there are things that varo can do um you know particularly coming off the back of the pandemic where um, you know people who rely on checks and and have relied on you know um, stimulus payments and so forth during this period how can you know we get them into the formalized banking system given yeah. the problems with identity and and, and yeah so these are all great questions and I think we can help on many fronts so uh, first is lowering the cost so you know one of the one of the sort of uh, implicit barriers to entry for many consumers is just how expensive it is to to bank in the formal banking system because of all exactly. of these charges and, and and then the other is around speed and how quickly we can move money and people who don't have a lot of money need their money and they need it quickly um, and whether it's around you know fast depositing of stimulus checks or moving money through the payment rails and you know even within borrow we have an instant peer-to-peer -peer, uh, money movement system that's free for consumers to use you know we can instantly help customers access in the cash if they need cash to bridge through small dollar lending we can instantly move money across accounts you know so all of those things you know we're not dependent on you know when you're in a sponsor bank situation or if you're a fintech that's linking to other banking you know you have to rely on ach and other money movement that takes time and costs money um and as a real bank all of that is now you know we've direct access to all the payment systems and so so we can move money in real time um, and then the other point that you just made which is a really good one is around identity solutions and really understanding 
who people are, building trust scores so that you can help them um, you know, access the system and, and have the most flexibility um, through more sophisticated data and, um, and, and um, data-driven solutions that help you uh, really identify those consumers. And keep bad actors out too. That's the yeah. other piece is, you know, having really sophisticated solutions to identify bad actors and, and, and kind of, uh, move them along. You know, having started a challenger bank myself, you know, one of the things that I often heard, um, you know, for many years was that the incumbent bankers saying, you know, that challengers were never going to make it as soon as they came up, it came across a real, um, you know, financial crisis, we're going to see them go under. And of course, you know, um, the, the pandemic has sort of proven, proven that wrong, but in the U S in particular, do you feel um, like a responsibility to be the poster child? For the challenger bank viability, or, or well, I think we already are. I mean, just so first and foremost, I mean, we're we did all the hard work to become a legitimate bank. I mean, so we're not, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to disparage anybody, but like, you know, we're we're, we're a real legitimate bank, and, and you know, we're not relying on somebody else's rails or somebody else's bank charter, and so you know, and that holds us to a much higher standard. I mean, we we are scrutinized, you know. Uh, front to back in terms of our business and, and all the things that we do, which is good for consumers because it's just, you know, guarantees that, you know, we're, we're held to a very, very high standard. So now, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the sort of, uh, just the remarks around, you know, are these challenger banks ever going to make it? I think where the next, the next act for Varro is to show that we actually, we're going to be profitable and we're going to have a sustainable business model. And we're going to be operating at a level of scale that has a meaningful impact in the industry and on customers' lives that, you know, and with many of the customers that the banks have, um, largely ignored, and you know, I think it's it's due in, in in large part to the fact that the economics haven't worked for them. You know, they just haven't been able to, given their distribution model and their legacy technology and and uh, their go to market strategies, that they they have not been able to to make those economics work, and so they've chosen to you know not serve these customers well. Like if you think about you know, again, going back to the analogy of like, if you're a 30 something that is working two jobs, you know, you're trying to get to your next paycheck. You might have, you might be a single mom with kids at home and, and you're trying to solve things like, you know, accessing credit, or if you have a bad FICO score, like everything is hard, like you know, getting, getting that job or getting the car or getting the next apartment. Um, if you don't have any savings, like having tools to build savings and actually earn interest on savings, you know, being able to have solutions to, to bridge you to the next page, like all of these things that, that we do is just part of course of our business and, and, and the solution that we provide, that is very difficult to, um, to, to find in a, in a traditional banking uh, organization today. So, so I think, you know, building that solution that's very customer focused with the economics that allow us to profitably serve this massive group of consumers um, and, and do so as a real bank and a profitable bank, I think is going to be when, when others wake up and say, oh, wow, this is viable. <laughs> and and there's the, this is a real, real kind of challenge to the incumbent system. No, I agree. And, and on that note, 
um, you know, we've seen PayPal launch their super app this week, mm-hmm. um, which is is interesting. Um, but you know, if we if we look at China with Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay, obviously there's been much greater attention on these organisations in recent times because because they grew so quickly and became so dominant. But on that note, we now have mobile wallets which are transacting about twice the volume of plastic cards globally annually. And so mm-hmm. you could argue that mobile wallets today are the, you know, the the, the default form of day-to-day banking um, for most of the world compared with plastic cards. Um, and we have buy now, pay later, sort of contextual mm-hmm. credit coming in and so forth. So there is, um, you know, it appears certainly that we are starting to see more banking utility become embedded in our world that sort of strips away the traditional product layers. So buy now, pay later instead of credit cards. Um, you know, mobile wallets uh, and, and value stores instead of debit cards and so forth. And so some of the criticisms that have been levelled at the US market in particular is that when it comes to innovation around those existing products, it's pretty difficult. Things like your savings rate and the way, you know, you fill out an application form are hard-coded in US regs, for example. So, you know, when is it that Varo gets to the point where, where you say, well, we're not issuing a debit card anymore or or, you know, you you have a, a you know an electronic uh, value store in the wallet. Um, you know, credit is contextual based on behaviour. You know, when when do you see Varo being able to break that sort of traditional product cycle that you know incumbent banks have? Because one of the criticisms of the challenger banks globally is they tend to just be you're just digitising the existing business rather than real innovation. So, Brett, have you been reading my Slack messages <laughs> to my product team this week? <laughs> yeah, so so we so we actually we talk about this all. Maybe the time. you should put and, me and in the Slack, man. I can. Yeah, there you go. Stuff. I don't know. I'd be a little worried about that. <laughs> so, um, no, but you're, you're, what you're saying is absolutely right. And I go back to what I said earlier that you know the 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 super app of the future or the kind of killer app is really a set of seamlessly integrated product solutions you know, a multi-product solution that does a better job at solving the customer pain point than a single point solution. Okay. And so, and so what that is really depends on the customer you're serving. And so, you know, what, since I started the company, you know, going on six years now, um, it was very much about creating this sort of bundled solution that will help the customer, whether it's around a cash flow need um, or you know a, a, a savings need or something, and, and you you yourself have been an early pioneer around thinking about how to use insights and how to use budgeting tools, and, but how do you bring all that together with the ability to move money, um, the ability to have stores of value, the ability to lend money and collect it and get it back, um, you know, the ability to actually create. Uh, wealth building solutions and and do it all in a really holistic, seamless way. So I do think that you know wallets and and kind of next generation lending solutions that all are built in the context of the problem that the customer is trying to solve are going to be the the next generation of killer apps. And and in, and so I would just say stay tuned because <laughs> we now I, have all the raw ingredients. Like you know we yeah. have all the pieces now, and it's just about kind of putting those together in a really exciting way. Yeah, the behavioural element is obvious, extremely critical, how your bank mm-hmm. account moulds itself. I, I refer to this, um, you know, when I do the talking head stuff, as the, the emerging smart wallet wars. 
right? Mm-hmm. It, it's big, or the smart bank account was. You, you could you mm-hmm. could say it either way. Um, is that I think by 2025, uh, you know, consumers will be choosing a bank based on how smart it is, how it it um, you know, it, it adapts to your personal financial situation. It's more than personalization because it requires, as you said, the ability to coach people, give them uh, um, you know additional income opportunities, uh, you know, all of those other elements, which banks would would have said that's not our, our role in the past. If you, you want to save money, go to a, a financial advisor or money coach. But the technology but, is closing going back to what, on that stuff, right? But going back to what you were saying before, like one of the one of the, the Achilles heel for a lot of these traditional banks is the sort of product silo focus. And it runs much deeper than um, just kind of a a, a, a business model. It's a cultural thing too. Right. So, so you know, I, and, and, and the way the systems have all been built, like they all these, you know, so I spent years in these legacy banks and you know, you have a credit card business that has its own core system. It's got its own data group. That's trying to think about who to target. Then you have, you know, the current account or the checking account group, and then you've got a savings group, and then you've got a mortgage group, and then you've got a, you know, and it like goes on and on and on. And you've got a separate wealth group and each one has its own stack. It has its own data model. It's got its own president and CEO that's focused on optimizing the needs of that business division. And so all of that just, it just makes it impossible to actually focus on a customer and what is that customer trying to solve every day, you know, when they're, when they're living their lives. And this is where I believe a company like ours and others in this space, you know, have a huge advantage is that we are built around just focused on that customer and understanding deeply what what the challenges are that they have day to day and how we innovate around a set of solutions to help make their lives easier. Where where do you um, see crypto fitting with, you know, crypto custody and crypto asset mm-hmm. classes fitting within Virostack? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's something that is absolutely out there that we have to, you know, you kind of have to go to where the puck is going over time. Um, you know, we've got a number of things that we're focusing on in the near term in our roadmap, but it's something we're certainly starting to explore and understand, you know, how, what are the use cases that are going to make sense for our customers, um, how to help them if they want to you know, hold crypto assets or, or, or do things within the, within the ecosystem, you know, how to do that responsibly, not to put their money at risk. And so there's a financial education component around this as well that we're looking at, but, you know, clearly it's evolving very rapidly and, and it's something that, you know, we want to ensure that, you know, uh, we're, we're part of the ecosystem over time and, and, but doing it in the right way and identifying the use cases that make the most sense for our customer base. Now, um, you know, obviously, one of the aspects of of growth is is customers. Um, you know, HSBC we've seen recently retreating from the U.S. market from a retail perspective, or at least uh, uh, reducing their footprint. They only had two and a half million customers, and they were the fourteenth largest bank in the U.S. And obviously, they've got a mortgage business and everything. And we obviously look at um, uh, you know uh, banks in terms of their size by assets, but the the obviously the number of customers is a key element. Um, both. Var- and Chime uh, are in the top, you know, 
20 banks in the US now by customers, number of customers. Um, but, you know, do you see that, uh, you know, with, with this big chunk of cash you've got, are you looking at expansion of Varo outside of the US or is it more just about consolidating, you know, assets under management for, for the US? Where do you see uh, this taking you in terms of growth? Yeah, a great question. And so there's just a ton of runway in my mind still here in the U.S. I mean, so, you know, part of why I chose to move back to the U.S. and, and start this company is that, you know, I just feel that until, you know, I won't be satisfied until I can feel that, like, we are, are truly impacting customers' lives at, at a level of scale that 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 it feels important and and feels societally important and so i think that there's just still so much work to be done um in communities across this country and so that's something that you know, we're going to continue to focus on now that said you know i've spent a good part of my career running businesses overseas as has most of my management team so it's a pretty international crowd um and so you know at some point would we consider you know are there uh you know elements of our business or do we replicate our business in other markets i think each market um, has different dynamics, um, you know, both in terms of the economics. You look at certain markets like um, Europe and Australia and where, you know, interchange has been regulated. So, you know, the sort of payment economics are very different um, in terms of what how, how to make that work in terms of a core course source of revenue. Um, you have other markets where, you know, some of them are very cash driven, um, you know, or where lending is, you know, there's not really good access to bureau data to make good lending decisions. So all of that we have to really think through carefully around if we're going to go into different markets, where could we have an impact, but also where can we make the economics work? Um, and so thinking about kind of each market on its own. And, and then where does it make sense to partner versus where it might make sense to actually go buy a bank or or to um you know you know to use our bank and and open a branch in another market you know so there's a number of different ways to think about this and i would say it's much more of a longer term play uh but certainly i wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out and you know something that i enjoyed a lot in my career is just you know understanding different cultures and 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 how to bring innovation into uh into different markets of course theoretically you'd have an advantage we've just seen um you know uh, J JP Morgan uh, launched Chase in the UK as a digital mm -hmm. bill play. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw DBS do it with DG Bank in India. That's right. Uh, there's certainly a growing, you know, very credible argument that if you launch digitally into new markets, it's going to be far cheaper for expansion and growth than launching in the traditional way that the likes of HSBC and Barclays would have done in the past by acquiring branch networks or acquiring a bank with uh, oh, I have no interest in acquiring branch networks. Right. If we were to I, I, I any, any, of the, any of these markets, it would be through a digital play for sure. Right. But there's and, you, know, you could partner got, with a telco or yeah. you know, there's lots of different ways you could get into it. You know? So I do think there's, uh, you know, obviously the fact that you have launched as a pure play in the US, you know, if you're then to replicate um, the uh, the structure offshore, it's going to be easier than, you know, for Chase, it's an entirely new learning curve for them, you know, mm -hmm. launching, mm -hmm. launching as a digital pure play. But let's talk about, um, you know, organizationally uh, just quickly before we've got about three minutes to wrap up. How do you see this changing the team and the organization? What what are the sort of hires or or people you'd be looking for now to expand out and and uh, improve your maturity? Yeah, well, at the top level, I mean, I I feel incredibly honored to 
to to serve an, an awesome uh, executive leadership team. I mean, we've we've attracted just such high caliber talent, and you know, every day it's a it's it's really an honor for me to to be able to work with some of these folks. And so, uh, so I don't see lots of change at the um, sort of management executive, you know, the, the senior executive level. But that being said, we are obviously ramping up our engineering organization. We continue to ramp up, you know, key roles in the product organization. Um, you know, our marketing and, and growth teams were hiring rapidly. Our data science group were, were continuing to add add just amazing talent. So, you know, across the board, and then obviously on the operational side, just as we're, you know, risks and controls and scaling and um, all the things that are super important uh, to be able to safely protect our customers' money and, and be able to offer the best, best consumer experience. So those are things that we're just continuing to look at as well. Awesome. Um, and is is there anything that in sort of the short term that this money allows you to do that you've been waiting to do? <laughs> um, it's it's interesting because you know, like I said, I, we didn't set out to raise this much money, so I'm still kind of digesting. Like, okay, but, well, but another, you must have had a plan uh, for yeah, some money yeah. coming in. Right? I mean, I would say we you know we did. We we had decided opportunistically we were going to go and we were going to raise a bit of capital. And you know, we had done the deal with Russ, and and we actually ended up taking much more money then too because it was just showing up at our door. And and so I think for us, it's about you know the the one thing that I feel like will make a big difference and particularly in the space more generally is the brand uh, investments and you know we launched our bank for all of us campaign which has been incredibly powerful and impactful with with the consumers that we serve and it really starts to differentiate borrow in this in, in what like they said earlier is a pretty crowded noisy space uh, and i think you're continuing to build this culturally relevant beloved brand in, in, in this category uh, is something that makes me very excited. And so that's certainly one area where, where I think we're going to continue to double down on our investment. Fantastic. Well, Colin Walsh, thank you very much for joining us on Breaking Banks this week to tell us a bit more about your raise. Where can people find out more about uh, Varo Money? Yeah, the best way is just to go to borrowmoney.com or you could download the app in either the uh, Apple App Store or Google Play Store. So uh, great to see you, Brett, and uh, as always, enjoy chatting with you. Thank you. And what about if someone's interested in careers with our... Yeah, on our website. We have a career page on the website Yeah, and on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Colin, right. uh, great to see you again. All the best and, and uh, phenomenal uh, um, you know, uh, work that you're doing in the space. And we congratulate you and thank you for it. And uh, uh, you know, all, all the best moving forward. Thanks so much, Brett. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.